Amen. Well, thank you, Thea. That's a beautiful message, a very simplistic message, but a very profound one. I believe one that's going to relate very well to what we're going to be talking about today. If you have your Bible, hope you brought that with you. Uh, go ahead and pull those out. Turn to with me to Philippians chapter 2. That's uh, where we're going to be as we continue on talking about this letter that Paul wrote to the church of Philippi in a, in a series that we're calling Joy in the Midst of Darkness. Listen, before I get going today, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I do want to just do something that I know this person is not going to like, because uh, this person does not like the attention to be on them, um, and this would actually include a, a terrible different people, but but first, can we just thank the deacons uh, for setting up this FLC? Uh, it took quite some time just to get some chairs, to, to get set up to look like this, to get everything you know out of the out of the FLC in here. Can we just thank our deacons and, and everyone else who helped in that? And I also want to thank... Uh, in particular, Drew Ritchie. Uh, I know that Drew Ritchie works, yeah, he works a full-time job, and he was up here almost every night, I think, this week, um, trying to get things set up, and so I just want to make sure that we are appreciating him. I know that I do uh, as well. Well, listen, before we, we dive in, I do want to just uh, um, draw your attention for a moment, not to the Word of God, we will get there in a moment, I promise, but I actually want to draw your attention to this bracelet uh, that I am wearing today, and I, listen, I know that a lot of you can't see anything other than it's a black bracelet, but I promise you, maybe those of you on the front row can see this, those of you in the back in church online, you probably can't see it, but it actually says something on this bracelet, and it has four letters written on it. You know what those four letters are? Anyone know? WWJD, okay? Now, for you good church people who know what that means, can you just tell me, can someone just say, what, what does WWJD stand for? It's an acronym. What does it stand for? Someone say it. What would Jesus do? Now, that's a really good question to ask, right? I mean, that, that's a good question. As followers of Christ, we should seek to live a life that, well, follows after Christ, follows after his, his teachings. And so when we wear these bracelets, uh, when we think about that acronym in our mind, that should remind us that whatever type of circumstance or situation that we find ourselves in, we should seek to, to live a life that, that models Christ, that would reflect what he would do in the situation we find ourselves in. But listen, the reason I tell you all of that today is because as we come to this next section of Paul's letter in chapter 2, what we see him do is basically pose and answer this question for us as it relates to humility and serving others. In other words, as we looked at in verses um, 1 through 4 last week, we learned that Paul challenged us and encouraged us as a church, as a body of believers, to be humble, to be considerate to others in our relationships with each other so that we can, as Paul says in in verse 2, be united in one spirit and intent on one purpose, which is to, to build each other up and to share the gospel with the lost. But now, as we come to verses 5 through 11, Paul's going to vividly show us what that should look like through the example of Jesus. Paul's going to say he is the ultimate example of what humility is. He's the ultimate example of what servanthood should look like and and what that looks like just in a day-to-day basis. Okay, and so again, just to go back to this phrase, what would Jesus do? Right, to go back to this phrase that's been so popular for many, many years. It's a great question to ask ourselves as we seek to live a life worthy of the gospel, as Paul says in Philippians 1.27. But truthfully, the only way that we can answer that question and apply it to our own lives is if we first ask the question of, what has Jesus done? What has he done? If we're to do what, he's, what he would do, well then, 
let's take it a step back and say, well, what has he done? We see as it relates to humility, as it relates to to servanthood, what we're going to see today is that what Jesus has done, it's immense. As Paul writes these incredibly profound and beautiful words about the person of Jesus, we're going to study today, beginning in verse 5. Look look with me now in in verse 5. He says this, Paul says, he says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, church, I just have to pause and say that this is one of the most amazing passages in the entire Bible. There there is a part of me that wants us to just spend the next six, seven, eight weeks and just picking apart this passage. And truthfully, even if we did that, I don't think that I could exhaust all of the riches that's found within this text. But as it relates to our time today, what I want us to consider is why. Why did Paul write these words? Why, why did he do that? Okay, in other words, while this passage, it's filled to the brim with, with rich theological truths about the person of Jesus and what he has done, and we're going to get to those in a moment, the question that I want you to consider today is, what is Paul's motive in writing these verses, particularly as it relates to the teachings and instructions that surround them? Well, to help you answer that, I would first encourage you to notice where this passage is located in chapter 2. You see, if you look in your Bible, again, just look at your Bible, you'll notice that in the previous section, that's that's verses 1 through 4, Paul's talking about avoiding selfish motives. He's talking about avoiding conceit when it comes to our relationships with other believers and to instead pursue humility and selfless care for the interest of others as that creates unity in a church. That creates harmony in a church. And then looking ahead to next week, not to still... Hunter's thunder, because he's actually going to preach this section next week. But what we're going to see there is Paul basically saying, avoid grumbling with each other. Avoid arguing with one another, because that creates disunity in a church and damages our Christian witness to an unbelieving world. Now, the reason I point all of that out to you today is because what I want you to see is that in this text that we're about to, to look at and study, is that this text acts as Paul's focal point in his teachings in chapter 2 on humility, on selflessness, on unity, on harmony. It is the central point that Paul wants us to draw our eyes to. Okay, and so, so yes, while Paul gives us teachings in verses 1 through 4, while he gives us teachings in 12 through 18, he's saying, but look to Jesus. Go to this passage. See how Jesus actually lives this out. See, Paul realizes something that we need to realize today, too, and that is this. When we adore Jesus, we will emulate Jesus. When we truly just stop and pause in our amazement and wonder of who Jesus is, it will propel us and compel us to also live a life that would model after Him. It's going to cause us not just to fall down and worship 
him at our feet, but it's going to compel us to pursue a life that, that models the life he lives. And get this, when that takes place, not just in my life, not just in your life, but in this church's life, that's going to create this unity that Paul keeps talking about. That's going to create this harmony that Paul keeps talking about in this letter. You see, unity, listen to this, this is important. Unity is not the result of good preaching. And Paul knew that. And I know that. Unity is not the result of good preaching. It's the result of the people of God adoring and emulating Christ. And so again, Paul, understanding this and realizing this, he draws the attention of the Philippian believers, not to his own, but mainly to the teachings of Jesus, who he was as a person. Because he knows that if he can get them to look to Jesus and all these other things that he's talking about, well, they're going to fall right into line because if they're Christ-centered, if they're Christ-focused, and that's naturally going to take place. And I think that's why Paul wrote these words. All right, so again, it's my hope and prayer today, listen to this, that not only that we see the beauty of this passage, the exaltation and, and the adoration of Christ, but that we truly would experience that in our own lives today. Hey, when we adore Christ, we emulate Christ. If we emulate Christ, we're going to be united. We're going to be a church that's, that's unified and seeks harmony, and that's going to give glory to God uh, and allow us to do things He calls us to do. So to do this, what we're going to do today is three things. I want us to break down this passage into, into three major chunks, and there's a lot that's going on here, okay? So you're going to be drinking from a fire hydrant today, and I apologize. That's just, that's just how amazing this passage is. But to break it down for us, what we're going to be talking about, number one, the humility of Christ. Number two, the exaltation of Christ. And then the application part of this teaching is going to be the attitude of Christ. Okay? Humility of Christ, exaltation of Christ. Lastly, the attitude of Christ. Those are going to act as our outline today. So let's begin by talking about this very first one. And again, that is the humility of Christ. Okay, look with me again at what Paul says, beginning in verse 5. Paul says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross." Now, again, this passage is just chock full of Christological truths about Jesus. But what I love about what Paul does here is that he shows us Christ's humility, number one, through his life. And then number two, he shows us his humility through Christ's death. Let's talk about those for a moment, okay? Number one, we begin by talking about Christ's humility through his life. In other words, what was it about Christ's life that showcased his humility? Humility. Well, let me just draw you, draw you back to verse 6 for a moment. Because you see, in verse 6, Paul says something really interesting here. Notice what he says. He says, who, that's referring to Jesus, existing in the form of God. Who existing in the form of God. If you want to take notes in your Bible and underline certain words or phrases, go ahead and underline, or at least would encourage you to underline that word form that Paul uses here. And I'll tell you why. In a moment, okay? In the Greek, this word form is the word morphe, okay? Morphe. And that makes us think of words like metamorphosis or morphological. That, that alludes to the idea that something is morphing or that something is changing, right, as a result of those things. See, what's so neat about this word morphe 
or again, that word form that I had you underline in your Bible is that the word actually speaks about the essential form or nature of something that doesn't change. Did you catch that? Morphe, or the word form, in your Bible right here, speaks about the essential form or nature of something that does not change. Okay, and so what Paul is saying here by using a word like this is that Jesus Christ possessed and possesses the unchangeable essential nature of God. Okay, that's what the word form means right here. And now go back to this same verse and look at the word right before form. Okay, he says, who existing in the form of God. See, that's present active. In other words, what Paul is trying to show us here and say here is that Jesus always has been and continues presently to be God. That's why Jesus could say in his life and his teachings, his ministry, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because Jesus always has been, always will be, presently is God. Okay, so that's the first element about Jesus that I want you to see here. But now look at what Paul says at the end of verse 6. He says, Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Now what exactly is Paul talking about here? Well, what he is saying is that although Jesus is God, while he is all of those things, he didn't take advantage of all the privileges that would have been associated uh, with a title like that. Okay, Jesus could have clung to his deity, right? He had every right to, to cling to his deity since he is God. But what Paul is saying is that in his humility, in his consideration for people like you and me, he actually chooses to forsake that, and he does something else that Paul goes on to say in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Instead, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Now, church, that ought to just make us be in awe of Jesus, that he would do something like this. Basically, what Paul is saying here is Jesus could have puffed himself up with pride. Uh, he, he could have walked around in his self-righteousness. And by the way, could Jesus back that up? Well, yeah, Jesus is God. Jesus is perfect. I mean, he had a lot to be happy about in, in that sense. But instead, what he does is he empties himself. He doesn't puff himself up. He empties himself. He makes lowly of himself by trading the riches of heaven for the poverty of earth. Now let's just stop and dwell on that for a moment. You see, what this verse is telling us is that, number one, when Jesus came down to earth, he emptied himself of his heavenly environment. Jesus was in a, a perfect environment, that being heaven. He had all the angels singing to him, giving him praise, and rightfully so, but he emptied himself of all of those things when he came down to earth. Number two, when Jesus came down to earth, he emptied himself of his independent authority. His independent authority. And that while he dwelled on earth, he voluntarily surrendered himself for our behalf. He submitted himself to the will of the Father, which we know ultimately was the cross. The church, again, we just ought to be amazed by that. But guess what? It gets even better because not only did Jesus empty himself, Paul says, continuing on in verse 7 now, that he emptied himself by assuming the what? Say it with me. Form. Morphe. The the form. So again, he emptied himself by assuming the, the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. 
So we understand this now, right? Jesus, who had the unchangeable, essential nature of God, also took on at some point in time the essential, unchanging nature of man. That's what form means or morphe. Okay, in other words, when Jesus came down from heaven to earth, he wasn't just fully he got fully God. He was those things, but he was in addition to that also fully man. Okay, he both had the nature of divinity in that he was God, but he also had the nature of humanity in that he was man. Now you might be wondering why I'm pointing all this out to you today, but what I want you to see is that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he entered into a physical body. Listen to this permanently, where there was no escape. Did you catch that? When, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he entered into a physical body permanently, where there was no escape. For example, when Jesus was born in the manger, he was born physically. When Jesus died on the cross, he died physically. When Jesus arose from the grave, he did so physically in his glorified body. When Jesus ascended back up into heaven, he did so, he ascended there physically. And guess what? When Jesus returns, and he will one day, he will do so physically in both natures, in that he is fully God and also fully man. I like how one author puts it. He says this about Jesus. Listen to what he says. He says, the tongue that called forth the dead was a human one. The hand that touched the leper had dirt underneath its fingernails. The feet upon which the woman wept were were calloused and dirty. And his tears, oh, don't miss his tears, that came from a heart as broken as yours or mine has ever been. You see, what that means for us, church, is that when Jesus cut himself, he bled. When he stumbled up the stairway, he fell. Get this, when he slept at night, he probably snored like some of you do. Hey, listen, I know we don't always like to think of Jesus in this way, especially from the pulpit, but I believe it's very important for us to understand that Jesus isn't just divine in his nature, but that he is also earthly. In his nature as well. He felt the same things we felt. He experienced the same things that we experienced as humans today. But please don't miss this. Oh, please don't miss this. Because while Jesus did do these things, while Jesus did leave the riches of heaven for the poverty of earth, while he is both fully God and fully man, he came for a specific purpose. And that purpose was to be a servant of both God and man. That was his purpose, to serve God and to serve man. He served fishermen. He served harlots. He served the sick. He served the poor. He served the suffering. That's why Jesus himself says in Matthew 20, 28, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the point that Paul is trying to emphasize to us here as it relates to Jesus being the ultimate example of what humility is and what humility should look like for us today. All right, so that's the humility of Jesus' life that Paul describes in these first few moments, but first few verses. But, but let's just switch gears for a second. Okay, let's begin to talk about the humility of Jesus' death. The humility of Jesus' death. Look at what Paul says beginning at the end of verse 7 now. Paul says, 
And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Now, I love how Paul emphasizes Jesus' death here because not only does he say that Jesus died, Paul gives a description of that death. He basically says that he died the worst kind of death at that known time, which was crucifixion on a cross. See, this just further showcases, to me at least, Christ's humility, his service to to us. Not only did, did Jesus leave the mountaintops of glory in heaven for the lowliness of earth, but he voluntarily and willingly suffered, bled, and died by being nailed to a rugged cross, which was seen as the ultimate sign of humiliation, dishonor, disgrace in those days. And by the way, since we're on this subject, can I just say this? As a Christian, as a Christian, we shouldn't just see a cross in our church like the one behind behind me or the one that's on your neck and think to ourselves, oh, a cross, cool. And then just move on with our day like, like that had no impact in our lives or, or no significance. No, instead, as believers, we, when we see a cross, we should be in awe of that. We should be in amazement of that. It, it reminds us that when our Savior spread his hands to be pierced by the nails, it represents God's love for reaching out to us and embracing us despite our filth despite our sins, despite our rebellion against Him. See, when we see a cross, we shouldn't just see it as a piece of wood or a piece of jewelry. We should see it as as God's token of never-ending love, of His mercy for each of our lives. Ultimately, it can be summed up in one word, right? Forgiveness. That's what the cross represents. Forgiveness. That's why Jesus did this for us. Forgiveness. That's why Jesus showed such humility. Forgiveness. That's unconditional love. That's that's never-ending grace. Ultimately, it's the perfect example of what humility is. What humility should look like, which again is exactly what Paul wants us to see here. All right, so we've talked about Christ's humility through his life and death, but now let's begin to talk about God's response to all of this. Because what we're going to see Paul say in these next few verses is that God exalted Christ due to his humility and sacrifice for others. This is the second aspect of Christ that Paul wants us to understand here. So look with me now at what he says, beginning in verse 9. Paul says, For this reason... God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this is really interesting, right? Because first Paul talks about the humility of Christ, but now he's talking about the exaltation of Christ. Or said another way, first he talks about what Jesus voluntarily did, but now he's talking about what God voluntarily did in response to what Jesus did, which again was to exalt him. And so what Paul is doing in this text is he's saying Jesus went down, down, down. He went down, down, down through his life 
through his death, but because of that, God the Father took Jesus up, 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 and glorified him as a result. So it's humiliation followed by exaltation. It's the lowering followed by the lifting. That's how this passage works. It's just different peaks and valleys. It's it's beautiful. Let's just talk about for a moment this this exaltation. In other words, how, how exactly was Jesus exalted? Well, the first thing that I would just tell to you is that God actually exalts Jesus, I believe, through a couple different phases. Phase number one, the resurrection. The resurrection. Jesus was exalted through his resurrection. In other words, Jesus conquered death. He conquered the grave. He um, emptied the tomb. He left the tomb. And so as a result of that, God glorified him. Number two, phase number two, Jesus was exalted through his ascension. His ascension. Now, you remember this scene, right? Jesus has walked out of the tomb, and so he gathers all his disciples up. The Mount of Olives, he gives them the great commission that's found in Matthew chapter 28. And then he ascends back up into heaven, almost like a slow rapture. Well, what Jesus did right here, he was, he was glorified. God glorified him through that. And then lastly, phase number three, Jesus was exalted through his dominion. Through his dominion. You see, this speaks of Christ's authority. This speaks of Christ's power. And get this, seven times in the New Testament, the scripture tells us, That when Jesus got back to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God, showing not only that he had favor with God, but that God had also given him power, authority, supremacy over the creation given by God himself. And so, for example, just to go back to this passage I mentioned in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Remember what Jesus says before he gives those very famous words. He says that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's exalted through his humility. God has glorified him through that. Again, this just shows us those things. And so he was exalted through his resurrection, his ascension, and through his dominion. Now listen, before we just move on to the last point I want to point out to you in this passage, I I, I want to make sure that I point out one more thing as well uh, as it relates to this passage we just looked at and read. And that is that I want you to see That when God exalted Christ, he gave him a name that was of special status and significance. For for example, notice in verse 9 what your Bible says here. He says, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name. Notice the wording. Paul does not say a name. Paul says the name that is above every name. So the question now becomes this, right? What exactly is that name? What is that name? Well, your gut reaction would probably be Jesus, right? That's naturally where our minds go. But truthfully, I don't think that's what, the, I don't think that's the name that God is referring to here. I'll tell you why. The name Jesus in biblical times was a very common name. I know we typically only think of one person when we think of the word Jesus. But Jesus in those days was given by hundreds, if not thousands of people. There was a lot of Jesuses going around when Jesus was walking on the earth. And so I don't think it's that name. But based upon that knowledge and truth, I think the name that God was referring to here is actually the name Lord. Lord. Let me show you. Look at your Bibles beginning in verse 9 again. It says, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God 
the Father. Now I want you to think about this for a moment because what this text is saying is that not only did God exalt Christ, but God actually gave Jesus the title of being Lord. God said, you are Lord. That's just amazing to me that God would say that to the Son. God gave Jesus the name that was above all names, which is Jesus Christ the Lord. And so to take a step back now and just appreciate this passage in full, we see Jesus humble himself by taking the form of a man and living a life of a servant. We see Jesus humiliate himself on a cross as he's mocked, beaten, and killed. And that shows us, again, that Jesus went down, 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 all for the sake of rescuing sinners like you and me. But now through that, in response to that, God actually brings Jesus up, up, up. And he exalts Jesus through his resurrection, through his ascension, through his dominion, even to the point where God himself declares Jesus as Lord of heaven and earth, and that at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is indeed the Lord of all creation. See, here's the point as it relates to us right here. Let's begin to to apply some of this to our own lives now. We might wonder and say things as, as we read Paul's instructions about being humble uh, and serving others in verses 1 through 4 and say, is it, is it really worth it? <laughs> That's not very fun. That's not natural to me. Is it really worth it? Jesus would say, oh yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it. Because when I humbled myself, the Father exalted me. He lifted me up through my humility. Now, you might say, well, yeah, of course. You're Jesus. I, however, am not Jesus. I'm a normal person. So that is, that's not true for me. But listen to this. The Bible says in James 4, verse 10, that when you humble yourself before the Lord, God's going to exalt you. You, not just Jesus, you. He will exalt you when you humble yourself before Him. Now, of course, this is going to be a little bit different than Christ's exaltation. We're not God in the flesh, and so we can't compare ourselves in that way. But the point is that in God's appointed time and place, God will exalt you. He promises you to do that if you humble yourself before Him, if you obey His commands, if you seek others before yourself. Jesus Himself actually says it this way in Matthew 23, 12. He says this, He says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You've heard that before, right? It's such a good verse. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You want to just hear my definition or or translation of that verse? It's this. The way up is down and the way down is up. The way up is down. Way down is up. In other words, if you keep pushing yourself up with selfish ambition, with selfish pride, then you're going to go down. God's going to make sure of that. But on the other hand, if you humble yourself, if you put others before yourself, if you seek to be humble, then God's going to exalt you. He's going to bring you up. The way up is down. The way down is up. Now listen, this really leads us to the central point that Paul's trying to make in this entire passage. And listen, I know I've been all over the place today. This passage is just so rich. But let's just get down to the nitty-gritty. Why in the world is Paul writing this to us? What does it mean for us today? Well, what it means and what he wants us to see here is the attitude of Christ. 
the attitude of Christ. That's the third point. Look with me at what he says in verse 5, the very beginning, because this is the point. Paul says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So up to this point, we've talked about the humility of Christ. And as a result of that humility, we've talked about the exaltation of Christ given to him by God. And so now as we begin to, again, apply these things, we see Paul say here in verse 5, we should adopt this same type of attitude or, or mentality or, or mind that Christ is showcased through his own humility and sacrifice for others. In other words, what Paul is doing here is he's presenting the ultimate reason why you and I as believers should humble ourselves and, and serve others, as he talked about in verses 1 through 4. And really his reasoning is, is rather simple. His reasoning is this, because Christ did it. That's why you should do it, because Christ did it. And so, as followers of Christ, we should seek to live a life that would honor and reflect Christ in those ways that Jesus perfectly showed. So it goes full circle now. Let me just draw your attention again to this bracelet that I'm wearing. Again, this bracelet says the letters WWJD. It stands for what would Jesus do? And as a follower of Christ, that's a great question to ask ourselves. However, as we've learned today, the only way that you and I can ever answer the question of what would Jesus do is if we first ask and answer the question of what has Jesus done. And as we've seen today, what Jesus has done, it's immense as it relates to humility and servitude and service of others because he stooped down from heaven, taking on the form of a servant, of a man, even to the point of death on a cross so that if we believe in him, our sins might be forgiven, we'll receive eternal life. But you see, as it relates to verse 5, Paul takes it one step farther here. In essence, what he's saying is that, that we should not only say, what would Jesus do? Not only should we say, what has Jesus done? But we should actually start by asking the question of, what would Jesus think? What would Jesus think? In other words, what was Jesus' attitude or mentality like when he watched us from heaven being ravaged by the devastating effects of sin. He sees that, you know. He sees when you've fallen short. He sees your addictions. He sees how sin is just wreaking havoc in your life. What do you think went through his mind when he saw us literally dying from our transgressions, from our iniquities? I'll tell you what went through his mind. Compassion. Love. Forgiveness. Reconciliation. Mercy. Grace. Restoration. Redemption. And freedom from the bondage of sins. And so it was this mentality and attitude that led Jesus to leave the riches of heaven for the poverty of earth. It was this mentality and attitude that led Jesus to humble himself and take the form of man. It was this mentality and attitude that led Jesus to seek and serve others even before he seeked and served himself. It was this mentality and attitude that led Jesus to willingly be crucified on an old rugged cross so that you and I might be forgiven of our sins. Church family, the whole point of this passage is so that we might look to our wonderful, 
merciful Savior and Lord as the ultimate example of what humility is and what it looks like so that we can adopt this same attitude or mentality or mind of Christ and apply it to our own lives today. And so as we begin to close out our time together now, let me ask you, is your life characterized by your own selfish pride? Or is it characterized by your humility and your willingness to serve others before yourself? In other words, does your life reflect what would Jesus do? Or would it reflect what the enemy would tell you to do? Which is to puff yourself up with pride. Say, I'm only worried about myself. I only care about my needs and not the needs of others. So the Bible tells us in Proverbs 16 18, that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before fall. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. So that's pretty telling about pride, isn't it? Because what it tells us is that pride always leads to destruction. Always. Always. For example, just just think about the damage of pride that's found just in your Bibles. It got Satan kicked out of heaven. Pride got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. Pride got Saul kicked out of the kingdom. Pride got Haman kicked out of the Persian court. Pride got King Nebuchadnezzar kicked out of the Babylonian court. Furthermore, pride ruins marriages. Pride ruins families. Pride ruins businesses. Pride ruins churches. For pride is the cancer of the soul. And if left undiagnosed and untreated, it will destroy your life, according to Proverbs 16, 18. But you know what? There is an antidote out there. And written on that bottle is one word. Humility. That is the only antidote out there for pride. Humility. It's thinking like Jesus thought. Adopting his attitude, as verse 5 says. It's doing those things that leads us to pride. And guess what? When we adopt that into our lives, pride will be thrown to the wayside, my friend. We begin to mirror and model Christ. We begin to be humble. Pride will no longer have those devastating effects that it will have if left untreated and undiagnosed. Church, when we seek to humble ourselves and serve others the way that Christ did in this passage that Paul shows us, not only is that going to honor Jesus, but, but God promises to exalt us just as he did for Christ. And so maybe you're here today and you've realized That the primary focus of your life has been centered around not seeking to serve God, not seeking to serve others, but seeking only to serve yourself. Seeking only to serve the Lord. And so maybe you've come to that realization today. Maybe this morning God is convicting you to humble yourself, to realize that the goal is not to build yourself up, but to build up Christ and His people, because when we do that, we will be glorified. We will be exalted just as Christ was. For those of you, maybe you're here today, and listen, you regularly attend church. You know your Bible. You know what it says. You know its teachings. You know what the gospel is and what it says, but but there is a level of pride that's keeping you from truly accepting those things, from truly believing those things. And so if that's you today, then perhaps today you no longer pretend you're saved, but you actually humble yourself 
before an almighty God and say, I, I need your mercy and grace. And from when we do that, God will give it to us. God will come into our lives. God will exalt us in his perfect timing and plan. However God is leading you to respond today, I pray that you would. Let's pray and bow our heads now.